2, The Power of More from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation Thinking Today's episode is about technology and the tech world. We could win Los Angeles-based tech cat Lori Schwartz, a true technology catalyst. Before we get our guest into the conversation, I would like to introduce the co-host of the podcast, Dieter Brockmeier, the innovation expert at the Diplomatic World Institute. Dieter, how are you today? I'm great, and I like to be together with a, with a cat and catalyst. <laughs> uh, to pick up your little pun, I really like it. And uh, really, ha really glad to have Laurie here because I met her a few years ago, and I, we were following each other. And she is really a, a true expert of the U.S. tech and innovation markets. Hello, Laurie. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? I am doing well, and I'm very excited to be here. I think this is my first um, cross the ocean podcast, actually. So I, I feel honored. Perfect. Thank you very much for joining us. What are the current trends in the tech scene? And tell us about your background, please. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I was, uh, for many years, um, I was on staff at um, a big advertising holding company called the Interpublic Group of Companies, or IPG. Um, and I was there for almost 13 years. I ran, um, eventually, this innovation lab. And it was a technology lab, but more focused on consumer experiences and how they were accessing content. And so we had a living room of the future, a college dorm room, a store, an out-of-door um, wall. Um, and we looked at all the latest devices. And then we held tours there and events there. And all the different um, agencies and clients of Interpublic came through. So we would have folks like General Mills and General Motors. We had, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. We had like every business category you can think of came through. And what we were really doing is showing the C-suite what the latest devices were. And again, this was um, 15 years ago or so, maybe even longer now. Everything seems like 15 years ago, but... Um, It was really about getting iPads and new iPhones and all the latest devices into the hands of folks that, from a demographic perspective, may not be exposed or driven to use those devices themselves, but they were communicating with this new generation, Gen X and millennials, coming up, and they needed to understand all these devices. And what happened there um, was I started to uh, do a lot of public speaking and a lot of creating events. Um, and so when I left that job, um, um, again, about 15 years ago, um, primarily because I was, I had a two year old and I was traveling a lot and I wanted to sort of see what it would be like to go independent as an innovations expert. Um, at the time I felt, and this may still be true that in the agency world, a lot of the account reps wanted to be able to push a button that said, we do innovation. And so have an event for their clients, but then they were not really interested in exploring the opportunities um, because it didn't impact, um, you know, whether they did well with their client. And at that time, it was all about agency of record and keeping that, that account happy. And so as long as you could say, we have an innovation lab, come to it, see everything, they were fine. And so there wasn't really an appetite to 
explore any of these innovations. And so I grew very frustrated by that. And I also felt like if I'm going to leave this baby that I just made, I want it to be because people are going to do something. You know what I mean? I don't want to just go around the world lecturing about innovation, but not actually doing anything. And I will say in some of their defense that at the time, I think I wasn't thinking about how do I operationalize what I'm teaching so that they can run with it, right? I, I very much was in the mode of here is cool stuff. And I wasn't in here is cool stuff and this is how you make something from it. Um, it just wasn't the, the tone at the time. So I left that job and started consulting for a lot of companies. And, you know, this is a reality of when you become a consultant that the closer you are to that big corporation email address that you had, the more you get called from people who want access to that world. And so for the first two years, I was doing a lot of consulting for content companies, studios and networks who all wanted to understand what brands want. How can they sell their shows? I'm, I'm located in Los Angeles. So a lot of my work was consulting was with studios and networks. But I was also attending a big show called the Consumer Electronics Show, which happens every year in Las Vegas. And it's, one of, it's the biggest show in North America. And it's certainly become the biggest auto show in North America, um, showcasing the latest consumer technology. And I started walking executives around from Interpublic and doing a formal tour of the experience. So when I left, um, and I had some partners at the time, we decided to create a company called Story Tech. And that was because we were constantly telling the story around technology. Um, because again, in order to teach executives and regular people how tech can influence your life, make it better, um, help you create business, grow your business, do all these different things that we know it can, you have to really make it approachable because technology has a bad rap. Um, and, you know, I talk about this a lot right now under this idea of what's your tech story, because I feel very strongly that for a long time, so many people have watched movies where Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up at your door and tries to kill you as a robot from the future. <laughs> or we're constantly... Wrong, he, wrong, he, protect, he protects you. The, the, the killer right. is the, the bad guy of the other one. <laughs> later. Writ, like, writ later. But, but there's this overall idea, this overall construct that from a story that we all bought into of a negative dystopia where tech goes suddenly wrong. And so that is just an idea that we have all held on to. And it is continuously exploited by Hollywood and Bollywood and everywhere else in the world that's making movies that tech will go wrong and cause the demise of humans. And it's a sexy ticket buying concept. So what we're dealing with right now as people that want to leverage tech is we have to fight that story. And so one of the things that we did when we formed Story Tech was to tell people the story of technology in a way that was digestible and understandable and, and impacted them as human beings, as themselves. And so if I have a, a CMO or a CEO in my office who maybe is in their late 40s or 50s or even early 60s and they're very accomplished as an executive, if I'm going to talk to them about 5G or artificial intelligence or any of that things, I'm probably going to talk to them about how their kids are using it, um, what's happening in their home, um, 
their latest car and all the cool new telematics that are in their car and all the things that they are experiencing, not as that C-suite person, but as that human being and tell a story about it. And I have found over the years that that opens people's minds up, right? And it eliminates some of this fear. And so we really created Story Tech um, as a way to tell the story around technology. And then over time, different partners came and went, and I've kept at it. So I still work under the banner of StoryTech. And a lot of the work I do has um, transitioned into working for big trade shows all over the world, actually, helping them um, connect exhibitors, sponsors, and attendees together. And it manifests as curating panels and uh, hosting and moderating at live events. Um, it manifests as doing a lot of virtual events now. Um, sometimes I get hired by the tech company that is exhibiting, or sometimes I get hired by a brand that wants to create an experience for their executives. But in the end, all of this is about being a catalyst, about explaining what a brand, what a tech company, what a media company can do together to make their business grow and to connect with all of the different segments that they're trying to reach. Laurie, you are a frequent speaker. How is the event industry developing also in the light of COVID? People are coming back together. Yes. I think, first of all, that um, this, this is an interesting time because um, we thought we were over this. People have gotten vaccinated. Um, we have vaccine passports. Certainly in the U.S., it's become a political issue, and that could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> But um, I think there is a real hunger, uh, a physical and emotional need for us to be together. And what I've heard over and over again, and I've gone to a few shows that are you know, certainly smaller than they were two years ago, what I'm hearing from exhibitors and sponsors is that they want to go because what they know is that being in person is about sales. In order to really sell whatever their product or service is in person at these shows or at these events, does it. What's been great for everybody and a wonderful surprise about virtual is that you expand your audience, right? Your reach just triples. And we're seeing, you know, in the U.S. market especially, an international, a global reach. So now all of a sudden, because of these virtual tools, the idea of what time your show is and who your audience is has just expanded. And you're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of companies now have a much bigger mailing list and a much bigger audience. So that education piece has been tremendous for companies because of virtual. But when, in order to push people down that funnel, that purchase funnel, and really buy into a product or a service, in-person is needed. And so most exhibitors, most brands, most folks in this world who are trying to get a message out know now that both is needed and that in-person is really that final thing. So I think what we're all trying to do is push to in-person. So most of the events I'm working with are rolling out vaccine passport solutions. They're looking at how do we do on-site testing so everyone feels comfortable. Because certainly with the onset of Delta, um, we have to be careful about even just having a vaccine passport. Um, I always joke that, you know, what's the next variant? Is it the Loki variant? If you're a Marvel fan, you'll know what I mean. 
<laughs> but I'm always like, is the Loki variant coming next? But we really have to, we really have to find ways to make people comfortable to come out and be together. And there will be people that will absolutely say, and I've heard this from people that are vaccinated, they don't even have kids, and they're very much like, I'm staying home for the next year. You know, I do not want to get sick, you know, that kind of thing. And and also people who have any immune issues or kids. For me, I have a kid that's turned 12. And so um, I, I got her first shot. I will be getting her second shot soon. I am looking at a lot of travel coming up and some events coming up. So I'm making sure she's vaccinated. I will certainly get tested when I get home from any large event. So I think we just have to add layers onto things. It's the cost of doing business right now. And that's the important piece of this is doing business. We can't all let another two years go by and not do business. And so many companies have pulled their marketing dollars, have locked down, you know, travel policies, and they are missing opportunities to sell and to communicate their message. And it's a problem. And even though all of my colleagues who are in marketing, who are the M&E arm, the media and entertainment arm of a lot of these big tech companies and brands, they're frustrated because they've missed two years of messaging. So um, we've got to figure out how to light up live events and this industry in a way that will engage people and get them out and make them feel safe. Well, that's very, <clears throat> that's very interesting. And I fully agree. But what, what I hear from MIPCOM right now, it seems that the U.S. companies will stay out this time. And they say we only uh, get in um, in spring for the, uh, the next time again. Yeah. Um, this is a little bit contradicting what you're saying. But of course, um, it's a much more uh, lo uh, longer distance to travel. And uh, a lot of yeah. things can happen. Then you're just doing it domestically. You think that's what is the reason? I think that um, there's too many, uh, there's too many, um, I want to say vagueness. There's, there's not enough um, standardization um, about how all the European countries, uh, East, West, Asia are handling the vaccine and are also handling uh, checking people. And also the idea of being on a 12 hour flight with recirculated air makes a lot of, I think, um, Americans, uh, North Americans, um, a little nervous. So I think uh, also corporately, when a large corporation makes a travel policy edict, even if the people who are in the company want to travel, know they need to, whatever, they're hampered. And so I have some colleagues who are traveling on their own dime because they just want to go somewhere because they know they don't want to miss the event. Um, but large corporations, that's the challenge. I have an event coming up. I haven't had a lot of cancellations from speakers because a lot of my people are smaller companies who need need this event, right? Um, and so they're, they're showing up and they're showing up. It's in America. They're showing up. And that's because they're not coming from large corporations, global companies that have made a singular travel policy, And so no matter what's happening in the region, that global company made an edict. And so no matter what the reality is of the region, there's no moving forward because of that corporate policy. But these smaller companies, I think, are going to benefit. And I think what you're going to start to see in the, is these smaller companies and these emerging companies get more exposure 
over the next year and smartly take advantage of the fact that they have the speaker, they have the mic, they have the exposure in these situations. Um, so I think it's a missed opportunity um, from these larger corporations, but I understand they're rolling out large policies and they don't want to get sued. There's so much COVID legal litigiousness coming out of um, the U.S., I am sure, in the next year. If, if someone gets sick on your watch yeah. at a company, you're going to be in trouble. So, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, fair point. Actually, tech is something that is happening globally. Um, how is the world developing? Is Asia a big competitor? Who is driving the future, actually? I mean, I think different regions are driving different areas, right? Um, so Asia has always been ahead in a lot of the mobile activations and mobile behaviors. Part of that is driven by, say, you know, um, being a, an autocracy, right? Um, if you, we look at China or even Singapore, um, Singapore is undoubtedly a technology hub, just even how their city runs, which is so planned and so beautiful, um, but, you know, uh, not, a, not a democracy. Um, but they're able to roll out solutions that every citizen has to use. And when you roll out solutions that every citizen has to use, You see growth, you know, you see learnings, you see data generated, and then that tech moves forward, leaps forward. In the U.S., you know, we have, um, a, you know, a, a competitive uh, situation going on here with products, right? Um, we have consumerism. Um, if you have money, you advertise, and then consumers run and pick up that product or that service. Um, and it can be lopsided based on the investments on that company, But we certainly don't have any solution being nationally dictated. And so growth doesn't happen at the same speed. But what does happen in the U.S., which I think, you know, needs to be mentioned, is that the cream rises to the top, right? So after all this competition is happening, um, because all these different products are vying for attention, you see a product rising to the top. And you also see products that maybe were meant for every business category, but they partner and have success with one business category. Then they get really good at that business category. And then they get absorbed by a company in that business category. And then they become the winning solution. And so that's another thing that happens in the U.S. is little startups get bought and then they become engulfed inside of these larger companies and they become the go-to. So I think the U.S. is always going to have the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, and all these Microsofts, all these up and coming things happening. My house is filled with, you know, many different protocols, right? So I have a Roku, which is an OTT plugin. I have an Apple TV. I still have Spectrum, which is a traditional cable uh, provider. I have a Spectrum box. Now, part of that, the reason I have all those devices is because I make a living in this space. So I want to make sure I see the latest. So I, I have all these solutions. But I know many of my regular mom friends who just have like an Apple TV in one room and this and that, and they bought that then and they didn't know, or they have, you know, FaceTime this and Messenger that and all of these different things. And so the US, you know, most homes are multi protocol homes. Um, and it's a challenge, right? It's like, wouldn't it be great if there was just standards? And so there are a lot of bodies here trying to create standards. Um, and when standards land, 
um, things grow too. Um, but again, it's the cream of the crop. There are certain solutions like look at AI and I know I'm jumping around, but this is a great, a, a great uh, story to tell AI in the U S right now, you know, you could say that you have Siri for Apple, um, and you have, um, Alexa, right. With Amazon, um, and you have Microsoft too. Um, I don't even talk about Microsoft that much. You have Bixby with Samsung. Um, they're all doing their jobs, but when you look at who's processing language the best, um, we have to look at Alexa because there's so many devices that have made it into homes. Alexa is learning the most on the language front. Some would argue that Siri's learning the most on a context. Oh, there she is. <laughs> Alexa, stop. <laughs> we, we have to whisper. Um, but Siri, I think, has a better context, right? Um, and Google has its own stuff. So um, I'm just whispering because I have a lot of devices. <laughs> they all listen to you, Lori. Right, well, somebody has to. Dieter, somebody has to listen to me. But, but they, all, they all have special sauces, you know. So I have found that um, I can't ask. Um, I can't ask um, Siri, um, uh, Alexa, things in a row. Like it doesn't have that context, but I can ask Google to interpret an answer and then it'll give me a new answer, right? So everything has different solutions, different pluses and minuses. It would be fantastic if all of these solutions were going into one word library in the sky, right? One AI um, solution in the sky, but they're not. Um, and so, um, and I'm sorry, I was, I, I should have said Cortana, but I, I, you know, I don't really, anyway, <laughs> I don't really think that much about, it. but, but, but you, you see what I'm saying is that the U S is it's, it, it's complex here. Well, you avoided uh, to talk about China and we have this, um, semiconductor yeah, shortage. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. I think that this can uh, create a lot of stress in the future. Yeah. yeah. So what? So we have a chip shortage right now, and um, that is causing stress here. But what it's also causing is a push towards U.S. manufacturing, right? It's really, it's really the Biden current uh, administration in the U.S. is the Biden administration, and the Biden administration is lighting up a lot of protocols, including uh, money as part of our um, larger infrastructure bill to spend towards technology. And I think a lot of that will be about lighting up tech centers in the U.S. for manufacturing so that we never find ourselves, um, you know, basically hostages to China for chips. Um, so I think that's, that's a, you know, an almost positive aspect of right now, but certainly China has been the manufacturing behemoth for all things chips and tech. And my car, I just got a new lease and they couldn't give me an alarm system because they're back ordered, you know, right now. So there is a procurement challenge in the US right now. I think that's globally, but we are really, this has been educational, I think, to a lot of uh, manufacturers about um, what we have to do. And so I think you're going to see in the next couple of years, a flood of US manufacturing opening up. And we have to do that. We have to be competitive. We have to go green tech. Um, we have to bring jobs back here. 
you know, there's a lot of things that we have to do. So I look at the positives of a procurement issue and a chip issue, and I say, okay, we need to bring that stuff back here. So uh, what you, uh, you have in the U.S. too is uh, uh, very, uh, very strong women. That, and I think you're very uh, advanced in bringing uh, yeah. women into corporations and into technology. I think yeah. even the, the, the Women in Tech initiative, I think, yeah. is rooted in the U.S. So what yeah. is the situation? Uh, and you were a very early woman in tech. Yeah. Um, so um, what is your perspective in uh, this uh, respect? Well, it's so interesting. We definitely are having um, a bit of a revolution or evolution in women in tech. When I started out, again, 20 years ago or whatever, even though I, I was 12 or whatever, <laughs> I know that I one of the first things that I started to do when I was in the position to put women on stage, you know, to just curate events so women got exposure, I was immediately met with a challenge. And it was really interesting. One, women weren't in senior level roles yet at tech companies. And two, women um, like to be, this is just a generalization, but most of them at that time didn't want to speak unless they were perfect. They wanted to know exactly what the questions were. They wanted to understand who was going to be in the audience. They were very, very, you know, give me as much information as possible. I want to be amazing. Whereas men, there's tons of SVPs of new business that that's their job to speak at things. They're not allowed to say much. They know what they have to do. They nail it. They have confidence. They have ego. There's no issues. Women are much more, again, at that time, and I think this is changing, they were a little bit more shyer, um, lacking in some confidence. And so paneling, the simple idea of paneling women was actually really challenging. You had to make a few phone calls to get a woman. And a lot of curators and a lot of event producers didn't want to spend the time doing that. It's changed now because there are a lot more women coming up in senior level roles who are used to speaking. But I still find that women like to be a little bit more perfect and precise, although it is changing. The other thing that's going on, and this is just from a startup reality, is that women companies don't get funded at the same level that male companies get funded. And they don't get funded the same amount. Um, and I don't have the data points to share with you right now, but there is a percentage factor here. Um, it's, a, it's amazing um, the difference between a male startup and a female startup and where the funding goes and the access to funding. So that's a really big challenge that women run companies, women run startups don't get funded at the same level. And that's still a reality. Here's the exciting news. The exciting news, and I watched this kind of happen, is that Women are uniquely um, able to multitask. It's just a fact, a genetic fact. Women also have the ability to be both uh, manage both artist and engineer in the same situation. And so if you remember like 10 or 15 years ago where visual effects were just coming out and you had ILM and you had Sony Imageworks and you had all these global companies um, that were... Um, launching and doing visual effects and all these big Star Wars movies and all these other things. Well, the, the visual supervisors were women. 
it just so there's a generation of women that came up being visual effects supervisors managing the shots from engineers and coders and software people and then dealing with the artistry of the directors and the designers um, those same women have now moved on to virtual reality and so there is literally an explosion of women in virtual reality and augmented reality because it really requires the ability to manage those two worlds, left and right brains. And so you have this amazing crop of women, um, and I am a part of this group of women called Women in XR. It's just a, you know, a social networking group, but there are tons of women now having big roles at a variety of companies at Microsoft, at Google, and also at startups who are driving immersive content right now globally. And, you know, that's just, um, it's a really interesting data point, but I think it has more to do with women's ability to manage both sides of, the, of that story. Um, and also we know, and if you um, are f familiar with the female quotient, which is run by a, um, a wonderful woman named Shelly Zalis, who does a lot of event work globally, um, one of the things that she talks about all the time, and the same thing with Gina Davis, who's an American actress who started C. Jane, which is also another company looking at women in media. Both of those um, institutions have talked a lot about the fact that when there are women in the C-suite, when there are women in the boardroom, companies do better. And you can look at it from a financial perspective that the numbers of in companies that have a mixed boardroom do better. And so you want both genders working together because just from a science perspective, how we are built and how we are born, um, you, you know, we bring different skill sets to the table. So you want a mixed board, boardroom. And then we can start to talk about you know, um, ethnicity, and of course, we're in this gender questioning explosion right now globally where, you know, my daughter comes up to me and says, you know, I'm polysexual. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> just, be, just be 12, you know. But, and whatever your sexual preference is, I'm, not, I'm, I'm taking that off the table right now. And I'm just saying, let's just st start with your, um, you know, your actual science gender and just say you want a mixed room of people in the boardroom because they bring different skills to the table. And I think we'll start to see over the next 20 years or so what this, uh, you know, um, new definitions around sexuality will also bring to the table. But I, I just think the more um, influx of different ethnicities, genders, whatever sexualities that you have in the room, the better you're going to do. Um, so it's getting easier. I mean, it's funny because what I love about these women coming up, Gen X and younger, is that they don't have um, they don't have the thousand paper cuts that my generation has. You know, I'm I'm um, I'm Gen X. No, I'm I'm uh, what am I? I'm Gen X. Yeah, I'm Gen X. <laughs> I'm Gen X, but I have boomer siblings. And I have millennial digital behaviors, right? But Gen X women tend to have come up at a time when patriarchy really ru ruled the boardroom. And so we have a lot of paper cuts. And, and Sheryl Sandberg talked about this a lot, um, that you don't even realize it half the time that you're dealing with misogyny in the workplace, but you're just going through with your 
your day and you're not getting the same opportunities and you're, you know, being pushed aside or you're being treated a certain way. All of that is true. And my generation, I think, is a little dented by it. So we tend to be a little bit more like, um, should I ask for more money? Is it okay? Does everyone like me? You know, um, should I mom everyone here? Should I be the nurturer? You know, we're asking a lot of those questions. And, and I still do it. I'm confronting it all the time. But younger women don't have that. And I watch these younger women go balls out for big jobs and big roles and have the skill set to ask for money the way that men in my generation did. And often people say to me, just pretend you're a guy and ask for more money in a negotiation. Just be a guy, you know, and, and that I think is, is really going to go away. But I do think that Gen X women, you, you know, we're still, we're still a little dented from what we went, went through in our generation. Um, and, and again, even me who speaks all the time, I'm still, sometimes when I get confronted by a negotiation, I, I feel that those old voices coming into my head you know, um, of, uh, do I deserve this? You know, um, should I ask for the money? Um, does he like me? Does she like, me? you know, all that crap that is just should never be part of a negotiation or a business conversation with yourself, but we're a little, you know, crunchy around that area. Well, um, so, uh, what I see is, and I, th I think that's really a problem, uh, the, yeah. that uh, women are expected to act like men in, uh, very often. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and this of course stops you to act out uh, the real female talents. And, yes. Well, you see it, you see it in Hollywood. You have uh, a female warrior in, in every, uh, in, in every film and she is acting more brutal and more uh, cruel than, uh, than her male compatriots. And I think yeah. we really have to get away from that. But other than that, I, uh, what um, what is the perspective? And uh, it's just a quick answer. Uh, yeah. What's the perspective for your industry in within the next five years? Um, from a technology perspective, um, I think that 5G and AI are really going to rule the roost. And I think they are the two core sort of technologies or protocols or trends that will drive everything else. So you can't really talk about 5G without AI. And you can't really talk about virtual reality and augmented reality and you know 4K and 8K without talking about 5G. And you can't talk about the future of autonomous vehicles without 5G and AI. So I, I feel like 5G and AI are really going to change the world and already are. And a lot of people don't even realize it. And I always tell the story about, haven't you become the most amazing photographer in your life with your phone? <laughs> Do you think your skills have really changed? Or aren't you the best DJ in the world right now? All those things are AI. And most of us are like, oh, I'm scared of AI. It's going to take away my job. But it's already in our lives. And so what we all have to do, again, is not be afraid of what's coming, but embrace it and build off of it. I think the other superstar right now that is not never really talked about uh, sort of, you know, outside of a, a, um, an office, but it's data centers, it's edge servers, it's, it's all the things that are happening because of 5G and AI. And so you're going to have, um, you know, thin devices, right, where devices are just kind of screens and they're hitting the edge servers 
using 5G and AI, and you have what feels like this really robust device in your hand, but it's not because the device is that robust. It's got a nice chip and a screen, but it's really doing all the great things it's doing because of those edge servers. So everybody talks about the cloud and the cloud and pinging the cloud, but we're not even going to be making it up to the cloud anymore. We're just going in the fog, right? The fog is lower and that's where, and the edge servers and where all of that activity is happening. So I think we have to talk more about data centers and the role that they're playing right now for serving video and serving content and the relationship that studios and networks now are forming with data centers is really important. Um, especially in lieu of remote work and virtual production, which is going to be completely dependent on 5G and AI and all of these things happening. Um, so this morning, for instance, I attempted to exercise. Um, and when I say attempted, it's only because I ran, ran out of time. But I was exercising with my VR headset on. And I was doing this um, uh, app called Supernatural, where it's sort of like Beat Saber, which is a, a kind of famous Oculus um, app where you're swatting at, at orbs flying at you to music. Supernatural actually has fitness trainers talking to you, and you're actually squatting and you're uh, flexing and doing all these different things while you're hitting things. So you're getting an arm workout and you're getting um, you know leg workout. Um, and all of that is driven by 5G and AI. Um, and I'm doing it in my house. You know, and I easily installed a, a mesh network in my house. So, yeah, uh, what I wonder is you didn't uh, mention blockchain technology, but maybe that's because that's just an underlying technology that will do the do the processing, and it's not a, a consumer uh, technology that's visible to, to consumers. Uh, this was uh, my final adding. And so, uh, Christian, what is your summary of this? Thank you, Dieter. 5G and artificial intelligence are probably very strong innovation drivers and go hand in hand with each other. But data centers and edge servers are also important. Remote work and virtual production will certainly not disappear, but rather continue to grow. I believe the applications that are based on AI have only just started to get interesting. I thought it was great that Lori's Alexa immediately spoke up. By whispering, Lori reacted interactively to Alexa as a human and thus implicitly personalized the assistant system. I would like to do a podcast about the behavior of people when interacting with AI. I think that can express a lot about a person's character, how they deal with their AI systems and with real people. Today we had Lori Schwartz from Los Angeles in our podcast. She is a real tech cat. Thank you for the interesting conversation, Lori. Thank you, guys. To the power of more from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation thinking.